Margaret Nusana, do you happen to know how many podcasts are out there in the world? I have no idea. Do you have an estimate? 100,000? I'm going to guess 10,000. 10,000 out there in the world. There's got to be more than that. There's an estimated 2 million podcasts out in the world. 2 million is insane. I wanted to say 1 million, but then I was like, whoa, whoa, that's too much. 2 million. Yeah, it's insane. And and so, you know, for those listeners out there, I've been spending a lot of time learning about podcasting and, and kind of monitoring the industry. And there, there are 2 million podcasts out there. About half of them, about 50%, get less than 26, that's 26, downloads per episode a week. So half of them are basically nobody listens to. Where do you think we are in the percentage? Just as a guess. Oh, we're definitely way above that. <laughs> we're in the successful half. So where do you think, Margaret? Where do you think the SRB podcast falls? I mean, there's certainly listeners. There's listeners. Which we know, so, so that's the top 50 percentile <laughs> already. <laughs> so yes, we're definitely within the top 50%. So we, according to, according to like industry statistics from last year, uh, the top 1% of podcasts of that 2 million get over 3,000 downloads a week. And the SRB podcast is in that top 1%. I knew the numbers, Woo! so I cannot act surprised. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so one, one yeah, it's, it's pretty, I was really surprised when I first learned this because I didn't think, hey, I mean, I heard the 2 million thing, but I didn't think that the brackets break, breaking down um, in terms of percentages, I didn't think we, this is the first time in my life I've ever been at the top 1% of anything. Right. I mean, maybe I wish I was in that other 1%, but maybe I don't. Anyways, so, so you know, but, but I should say the frustrating thing with that is, is that I know people, uh, you know, are listened every week. Um, I know people, I have friends that use it in classrooms. You know, I know some of you people. And though we're over 3,000, the top 1% of podcasts less than 200 people actually support the podcast with their pocketbooks every month. Wah, wah. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of people are, are listening, which is great. Um, but those who can, who can afford, who have a bit extra, you know, change in their pocket. You know, if you're, if you're not a patron, you, you should become a patron. And, and why? Why should you become a patron? This is the thing. Well, first off, you know, we, we, and we've started talking about this, right? We have plans, right? Um, I'm going to release this Teddy, Rowe, Teddy Goes to the USSR documentary late next month. Both of you are working on your own narrative audio pieces, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I'm working on a series. Well, the idea is I'm going to be yeah. working on a series. You want to say like a minute about what you're working on just to let people have a sense, Margaret? Well, yeah, I, I'm uh, going to take a look into some of the stories that my family's told me growing up. My family's just insane. They have this crazy assortment of experiences that I've just... I kind of want to take a deep dive into each of them one by one. Like my uncle was in Chernobyl. My dad has this weird story with education. My great uncle escaped 
the Soviet Union went to Venezuela, <laughs> ironically, to escape communism. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like everyone is kind of is running all around the world doing something kind of radical. And, and so that's kind of the idea is I want to talk to them about it. Why are they doing that? Yeah. Why are you? How about you, Rasana? What are you? What do you want you give a listeners an indication of what you're working on? Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm working on an episode as well. Uh, I don't I don't know if it's going to be a series or not yet. Um, yeah, but it, it's based on my research project. Uh, I went to Sahalin in the fall and I did field work there. And um, in the end, I decided to turn it into a podcast. So I'm producing an episode about these two people I met on Sahalin and about their weird and complicated friendship. So... Stay tuned. And, and and we're talking about, amongst the three of us, we're talking about kind of mixing up the format to, to bring more narrative stuff, which, which I, I personally would prefer from a creative side, but also as a listener. Um, and, and to do that, you know, we, we need more support because A, as you might remember from last week, the more support we get in, the more money Margaret and Rusana get, Right. And then also to do this type of narrative audio, it requires equipment, things like software, um, the equipment like I got uh, Rusana last from from, from the fancy new job. mic. Yeah, fancy new mic. Um, you know, so can you tell the difference? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I can tell the difference. So, you know, if we could double the number of patrons to like you know four hundred or even three hundred and fifty, I think that will give us a lot more. Uh, things, you know, a lot more to work with to try to bring some different type of programming about the region that we're covering. In particular, you know, I have, I've talked to you guys about this before, but I also have a a small thing that I want to do on shit (laughs) in the Soviet Union. Basically, this, this doc, this strange document from 1935, where somebody sent Comrade Stalin a piece of shit in the mail. So, you know, I want to produce that story too, um, but again, it requires more resources and more time and stuff. So, you know, if you're, if you're a listener out there and you listen every week, or if you use it in your classroom or whatever you do with the SRB podcast, you know, please take some time, throw in a couple of bucks every month. Every little bit helps. If you want to become a patron, uh, go to patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the srbpodcast.org and there you can find a link to our Patreon page. So there's, there's, my, there's my pit. Well, hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined as always, or at least as always in the last couple of months, by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. Uh, as we just pitched to you, uh, a reminder that the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. I won't go through the whole thing. This week, we, we have an interview with Stephen Crawley about Russian labor, um, and, and Stephen is one of the 
few people I know of, at least writing in English that deals with labor issues in, in contemporary Russia. So I was very excited to talk to him again. Um, I had interviewed him a few years ago. So Margaret, why don't you go ahead and, um, and introduce Stephen? Stephen Crowley is a professor in the Department of Politics at Oberlin College. He specializes in Russia and Eastern Europe with a focus on labor and the political economy of post-communist transformations. His new book is Putin's Labor Dilemma, Russian Politics Between Stability and Stagnation, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Stephen Crowley. So Stephen, it's, it's good to talk to you again. It's been a, it's been a while. Um, you know, you're one of the few people that I know of that actually works on labor issues in, um, in, in contemporary Russia. And you have this new book uh, titled Putin's Labor Dilemma, Russian Politics Between Stability and Stagnation. And I'd like just to have you start by explaining what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so as you know, Sean, I've been fascinated by the question of the working class going back to the late Soviet era, you know, how they were going to respond to all the changes introduced by Gorbachev and then by Yeltsin. Um, and then obviously some of that had to do with ideology, the industrial communities and so on, the levels of protest. Um, and what prompted me, prompted me to write this book was discovering that even with all the dramatic transformations that have happened over the last three decades or so, there's just a lot of this that still remains, uh, particularly in Russia's industrial cities and towns. Um, and when I say remains, I don't mean unchanged, uh, but the very fact that the old Soviet factories and industrial towns remain has, I would say, crucial implications for Russia's economy, its society, and its politics. So much of the focus on Russia is, you know, today centered around Putin, obviously, the elite, the political opposition, not to mention Russia's foreign policy and so on. And in some ways, without trying to be too grand about it, I would say that I'm looking at the underbelly of Russian politics and society. And while I have the word labor in the title, the book speaks to broader contradictions of that uh, Russia faces today. And so, like with this book, what kind of story are you trying to tell about about contemporary Russia? Well, what is this, as the title says, this labor dilemma? So I would say this dilemma is both well hidden and also fairly obvious. And to sum it up, Russia has yet to fully reckon with the legacy of its post-Soviet industrial structures, especially the large factories and, and working class communities. I really like this quote from Chris Miller in his study of Putinomics. He argues that there's a hierarchy of goals at work in Russia's political economy. So he says, first, political control, second, social stability, third, efficiency and profit. So I think the contradictions in that goal ranking become pretty clear. Uh, political control, you can't just rely on repression and propaganda alone especially if the third goal, an efficient economy that provides some level of public benefit, is not being met. Um, yet, if you're prioritizing the efficient, you know, efficient economy, uh, that risks undermining the second goal of social stability or ultimately political control. Um, I say in the book, by preventing mass layoffs, the government can maintain social stability, but only at the cost of economic growth. 
but the lack of economic growth is itself a potential threat to social stability. So as I put it in, in, in the book subtitle, Russian politics between stability and stagnation. What is second Russia? Second Russia. So this is a phrase that comes from Natalia Zubarevich, who is probably the most prominent uh, geographer of Russia, the, the student scholar of Russia's regions. And she argues that there's something called First Russia, or what she calls First Russia. It's Moscow and St. Petersburg. And one could include in that maybe a handful of second-tier cities. But Russia is a country of small cities. Uh, a lot of factory towns, industrial centers, most of them that rose up during Soviet industrialization, starting in the Stalinist era. So Second Russia, by Second Russia, Zubarevich refers to these industrial cities and towns. And there's just a sizable part of the Russian population that lives and works in these communities. And it's often... Do you have a sense of the percent... I'm sorry, do you have a sense of the percentage of the population that lives in these areas? Um, we'll talk about the, the monotowns a bit later, but the monotowns, there, there's an official list of 300, one company or one sorry, one factory or one industry towns. So over 300, and according to the, to the government, that is about one-tenth of Russia's population. So that's just a, a very specific, I mean, these are just one factory, one industry towns. Um, and then, of course, there are just many industrial centers beyond that as well. Um, so, yeah. Do, does, does the idea of, this, of second Russia, I mean, because I also read it as, you know, also second in terms of priority, <laughs> um, where, I mean, you know, you go to Moscow, for example, and you can just, just walking the streets of Moscow, you can just feel that it just sucks all of the wealth and resources from the country in a, in a, in a concentrated way. So when I hear, when I've seen second Russia referenced, I also think of that as well, whereas the, the, the center just is the center of gravity and, and the rest just kind of orbits somehow. Absolutely. Yeah. So Moscow in particular, I mean, it just sucks in not only, you know, financial capital, but, uh, but human capital and, and so much else. Um, I mean, it's certainly what most of us think about when we think about Russia and we think, okay, it's cold and there's Siberia, but you think of Moscow and St. Petersburg, but, um, not only is Russia vast, but it is populated by these small and medium-sized cities that are spread throughout the country. Um, I mean, we use, in, in our own context, we use the phrase hinterland or flyover country or something like that, which also sort of gives that sense of, you know, second status. But, uh, but this is a huge part of the population. I mean, this is Russian, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, at least in a demographic sense, the sort of you know, the weight of uh, Russian society. Um, and, and obviously that has political implications as well. It's, it's interesting. When I think back to the literature, uh, scholarship written on the Soviet Union, there was lots of, you know, discussions of the quote unquote working class. I mean, mostly because the Soviet Union itself prioritized working class. Um, but, you know, looking at the working class has kind of fallen out of favor almost across the board in many disciplines. And one of the problems, it seems, is, is how to define it. So how do you, like, what makes someone, in, in your analysis, what makes someone part of the Russian working class? 
So yes, obviously the, the, the times have changed. We're no longer in that sort of, uh, Soviet era ideology of the working class. Um, uh, I mean, certainly industrial workers comes to mind and that's much of what I focus on. Uh, the Soviet economy, some referred to as a coal and steel economy. Um, and a lot of that legacy remains. I mean, one of the amazing things is that through the 1990s, I mean, Russia suffered from a, an economic decline worse than the Great Depression in the United States. And in the U.S., unemployment reached about 25% at, at its height. So one out of every four workers was unemployed during the Great Depression. In Russia in the 1990s, that just didn't happen. Uh, what happened was instead of the number of jobs being reduced, wages got reduced. Uh, and they got reduced all the way to there was this crisis of wage arrears. So in 1998, about two-thirds of Russians were saying that they hadn't gotten paid on average for about five months. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, talk about, I mean, it was just that different. And that led to just a different labor market. So, and it meant that, so they prevented a social explosion. This was what on everybody's minds, you know, talking about during the 1990s because things were so bad. So they avoided a social explosion, but it left a majority of the old Soviet enterprises in place. And that continued through the oil boom of the 2000s, uh, when stability became, you know, most important. Um, and it was really, uh, well, it, and it still exists today. But there are different ways of defining the working class, much as you're getting to. So I have a chapter in the book on truck drivers because there was a big truck driving truck protest of truck drivers starting in 2015. And truck drivers are something like, you know, these were owner operators, as we'd call them. Uh, so almost like independent entrepreneurs. But at the same time, many were also former factory workers. They left the factories because the wages were so low. They come from the same social milieu, and that matters not only in social and cultural terms, but politically as well, uh, for how, say, alliances are made. Um, and then I think there's even a broader definition, uh, I don't only think, but there is a broader definition of working class. Uh, Eric Olin Wright, the American sociologist, argued that... Um, Waged and even salaried employees uh, that aren't managers of other workers uh, can be considered working class. So as in the U.S. today, we think of, you know, we see organizing by teachers, uh, doctors, uh, professors, people fighting for better pay and work conditions. Uh, in Russia, public sector workers, uh, that's, that's a huge part of the employed population given the, the uh, presence of the, the state in the economy. Uh, we could consider on the one hand, these people being middle-class professionals, but they're also dependent employees on their workers. I, I want to ask you, and, and this leads into the issue of the monotown, you know, this issue, the, the fact that unemployment didn't, in the 1990s didn't reach, you know, catastrophic levels is, is really interesting um, because it's, it's counterintuitive. But at the same time, if you consider, at least in, in my thinking, if you consider the geography of Russia's industrial towns. If you close the factory, you're not only like getting rid of jobs, you're getting rid of electricity, you're getting rid of heat, you're getting rid of hot water, that the factory was a node in a lot of social services as well, like primary, like utilities. So in this, talk about the, the, what these, in, in this kind of context, the monotown, 
and and what what is the geography of it? What what are these places, especially since there's 300 of them? That's quite a lot. I, at least it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. So Monotown, Monogorod in Russian. Uh, these are um, again the, the the government now has a a you know an official list, and they define it as. Um, communities that are dependent upon a single factory or a single industry. Uh, and uh, they're often referred to as well as these so city-forming enterprises. So Magnitogorsk is the sort of archetypical example of this, uh, going back to John Scott and then later Stephen Kotkin about just how the, you, you first you started with the factory and you started with a few you know, uh, tents and huts or whatever. And then you ended up with the world's largest steel plant with, uh, I think, a 1.70,000 employees. Uh, and then the factory, the enterprise, really, in the Soviet parlance was responsible for all the social infrastructure for, for the workers and their families and so on. So Magnitogorsk is a big one, but there are many smaller, less prominent ones as well. Um, which, you know, many of them are are quite a bit smaller, uh, and they're spread out throughout um, Russia's vast space. Some of them are in the Arctic, in the Far East, in Siberia, many in the Urals, and so on. And then, as you're pointing out, the community is not only dependent on the factory for employment, but also for the very continued existence of the town. Um, so it, it, they are, in some ways, similar to company towns as we knew them in the U.S., but they're very different in the sense of, for one reason, the historical cycle. So company towns started fading uh, in the U.S. back in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, in Russia, the largest monotown, Tulyati, wasn't even in existence until the 1970s. Um, and then again, given Russia's vast territory, a lot of these places are fairly isolated. Um, so they're not in, in near other um, near other industrial, you know, I'm sorry, urban centers uh, in many cases, not all cases. Uh, so again, in the official list, over 300, close to 10% of Russia's population. Now the government is in the process of actually, by just definitional fiat, reducing this number by about half. And basically what they've said is partly because of um, that there was kind of graft, and there was different ways that different uh, enterprises and communities were trying to, you know, get money out of the government by getting on the list. So that started growing. Uh, then they're just saying if you're, if, if a town is sort of 50 kilometers away from another urban center, then we're no longer considering you a Bono town. Now, they, they have subsidized them. They've, they've been, the direct subsidies have been fairly limited. Uh, what they've tried to do is attract foreign investment. They've tried to set up special economic zones. Um, and these have been, you know, at best limited success. Uh, so, and they've tried to differentiate because, well, one of the things the, the, the list does is they, they categorize them depending on their social economic condition. And they've actually referred to them sometimes as the green, the yellow, and the red, the red of the crisis. Mono towns, so there's at least a hundred that are in the red zone, and and this all came about. Uh, so much, not much talk about this until 2008 and the global economic crisis. 
And then there was this real fear of the monotowns. Uh, there was this article written by Evgeny Gottmacher in Vietnamisti where he's called, he said, Nova Cherkask 2009. He laid out this scenario as if, you know, one monotown would protest another one. And then like dominoes, it would all lead to, uh, to Moscow. And, uh, he was chastised for, uh, for that, for just laying that out. Uh, but then about a few months later, there was this protest in Pikalyovo, this monotown in Leningrad Oblast that had shut down. There wasn't any more hot water. Workers stormed the, the mayor's office. They blockaded a major highway. And Putin helicoptered in. Uh, he dressed down Oleg Deripaska, the, the owner of the enterprises. And there was this famous scene uh, that people referred to as the bending of the oligarch, where uh, Deripaska had to come up and sign this paper in front of Putin, promising to reopen the, the factories. Um, so, you know, Putin, Putin is the savior. But the other, the other thing to remember is the monotowns are really the only most extreme form of these industrial communities, uh, because they are literally dependent on a single factory or single one industry. Is there no alternative industries for them to like invest in? Can they transition into anything else, turn useful or something? There have been lots of projects to try and do something about this. I mean, some of the more fanciful ones were to, well, let's make this into a tourist destination. Some people referred to, uh, I think it's called Dawson City in, uh, in the Yukon in Canada, which was part of the, the gold rush, which is now a tourist destination. But you know, then there's a question of just how many people are going to want to visit, uh, you know, a former gulag site in, uh, you know, in Siberia or the far north or something like that. Um, so uh, there's certainly attempts and in, in the, the government reducing this list. I mean, there's certainly a logic to it. Uh, if if uh, the monotowns are closer to other sources of work, then it's a bit easier for them to to survive uh people can you know go on shift work um they can you know they they can yeah even commute for like you know a week or so breadwinners will do this and the families will remain but the point is that the communities still survive and, and one of the things that's surprising is the economic incentives would appear to be going entirely in the other direction but many russians just don't want to leave these communities uh, even above the Arctic Circle, some of these places, people are just like, you know what, we, we came here and we built it, or this is, this is where our friends are, uh, and we just don't, we don't want to leave. So even if you're trying to incentivize us, bribe us, it's just not working. What are the communities themselves proposing? Um, it's a good question. Um, I would, so they're certainly looking for help from the government. I think, you know, to the extent that the, the local governments are involved, I think what happens more often is that it's sort of on an individual level, uh, people figure out how to survive. So Jeremy Morris has written quite a bit about this and he, his, his term for, uh, the, some of the monotowns he studied is, is people seek to make it habitable. So maybe the, the, the job at the factory isn't paying all that much, but you know, I'll find work in the underground economy. I'll, I'll just together with friends, we'll figure out how to, how to scrape by. Um, and that's for the most part, how they keep from just simply, uh, you know, ending up with some kind of disaster.
I'm Keith, and I'm delighted to have discovered Sean's Russia blog, now the SRB podcast. My dad came to America long ago from Vitebsk, and I got to visit Russia in 1973, staying in campsites, driving a rented Volga, and fighting off offers to sell my blue jeans. Thanks to that trip, I was able to start clearing out of my mind the cartoonish Cold War distortions about that country I had absorbed from our mainstream media and schools. Sean's work helps me to get a fully rounded view of Russia. Thanks, Sean. You're a watcher of labor protests and in Russia. And it seems to me that the government, I mean, the example you just gave of, of Putin kind of flying in and parachuting and solving the problem in, in Leningrad Oblast, um, it seems to me that the government is more sensitive to social protest than they are toward political protest. It's not that they don't use repression. It's just that they they're, they respond differently. They respond, it seems like to worker protests, especially if they're large, they actually do respond. Um, so how do you, how do you understand the, the role of worker resistance in, in, in Russia today? Well, there's a lot there in that question to unpack. Um, so, but I think you're absolutely right on the, on that first part. And so I want to make sure I expand on that. Um, I think that, um, so just thinking about protests and, and labor protests in Russia generally, not surprisingly, the biggest protests happened in the late 1990s with the wage arrears crisis. Uh, again, there was a lot of talk about a social explosion. There were the rail wars when coal miners and the Kuzbats, you know, just sat on the Trans-Siberian Railway because they weren't getting paid. There were hunger strikes, even cases of self-immolation of workers not getting paid. Um, and this was precisely when Putin came to power first as prime minister. Uh, and, and I think that this, he had a pretty, you know, this was imprinted on his brain. Uh, one of the things he did when he first became president was he revised the labor code. And as a result of the sort of bargaining, trying to basically take away some of the things that were in the labor code about, you know, how firings of workers could happen and so on. But in part of the bargaining over this, uh, he ended up empowering the FNPR. The FNPR is the largest union federation. It's the, it's some would say the legacy union because it came out of the former communist union, which really wasn't a union in the way that we understand it in capitalist countries. Um, and it, it sort of, it became kind of remained sort of hegemonic into the post-communist period. So they're independent and uh, or alternative unions, but they pretty much struggle to get a, get a foothold. Um, and then during the oil boom, uh, alternative unions became empowered and auto workers in particular, uh, particularly in foreign owned plants, uh, became radicalized, greater share of profits. But then when the boom ended, they lost that bargaining power. Um, and since then, well, many of the alternative unions are have become increasingly repressed. Uh, they're labeled as foreign agents because that's just what unions do. They, you know, they, they call themselves sometimes internationals and there's meant to be international solidarity. Uh, there's also severe restrictions on strikes. Um, 
And the protests that do happen are almost always defensive. They're kind of last resorts. So workers with their backs to the walls, um, and even they still find protests over wage arrears. And most are wildcat, uh, the, uh, the no union participation, the FNPR union, um, might get involved after the fact to try and resolve the conflict. And then without unions to coordinate those protests, they're most often isolated in the, um, you know, in a given enterprise or town. But then when protests happen more broadly, it's usually because the government impacts otherwise isolated workers or people as a single category. So this trucker strike I mentioned in 2015, that the government imposed a tax on long haul trucks. And these instantly, these truck drivers from Dagestan to Chita uh, were on their, on their, uh, you know, CB radios or whatever it was they used to communicate and, and they mobilized almost instantly. And so you see this true for social protests generally, um, like the monetization of benefits in 2005 or the raising of the pension age in 2018, all of a sudden spontaneously, um, you know, people in different cities without even communicating with each other are out in protest. So getting back to the first part of your question, uh, I think that's absolutely right. So the, the Kremlin has made it clear that political protests are just not going to be tolerated. But social protests, uh, there, there seems to be at least some space for that because they are seen not only by the Kremlin, but, but by the population as well as, as more legitimate, um, that they're justified. And I mean, I can expand on this, but, but I think there's a real fear that somehow that bridge will be gapped or, or what's, what's the phrase that overcome that you'll overcome that hurdle from the social protest to the political protests. Does it, does it also, does it also have to anything to do with, you know, and I don't want to overstress this of course, but you know, you had this rhetoric around 2011, 2012, where that's kind of the Putin majority is out there, right? These people are, are the constituency for the Putin government. So <clears throat> they can afford to lose the kind of middle-class urbanites who would go out and protest like in Moscow against elections. But, you know, they're, they don't, they can't lose that, that constituency in, in the country. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So almost from the time Putin came to power, he styled himself as the defender of just everyday working Russians. So the, the wage arrears crisis came to an end, you know, largely because of the oil boom. Uh, so he appeared to deliver on stability, uh, wage growth, certainly through his first decade, the 2000s. And then in 2009, uh, when that crisis happened, Pikulyovo, there he is, you know, helicoptering in as the savior. And then as you're referencing, 2011, 2012, these huge protests, mainly centered in Moscow and St. Petersburg, uh, calling for Russia without Putin. And then there's this scene on one of his uh, direct line call-in shows, this guy, the factory foreman, Igor Khomanskik from Uralwagenzavod, Ural's tractor factory, says, hey, Mr. President, me and the, if the militia can't handle it, me and the Mujiki, we will come out to defend stability. And um, 
And and Putin made a lot of this. He, he appointed Kolmanskik his his presidential representative for the Urals. Uh, he later, after he was elected, reelected, he had a telebridge to the Urals tractor factory, and there he said something like, "Hey, in contrast to these chatterboxes." He said, you're the real Russian people, the, the real, the Russian working man, the man of labor. I mean, the chill of now, so not quite so gendered there, but, but yeah, that was clear, the, the, the clear message. So, you know, there's just symbolic kind of cultural support for workers. And, and I think there is a gendered dimension to it for sure. Uh, it, it wasn't so much working class in the Soviet sense, but the Mujiki, you know, and, and Putin was seen as a, he's a tough guy who gets things done. Um, you know, but at the same time, and, and we see this throughout, say, Western countries, advanced capitalist countries, if we can still use that term, you know, there's deindustrialization, de there's a shrinkage of the industrial working class for a more service, <clears throat> for a more service worker. So how, what about service workers? Like how do they figure these other types of people that you included in your definition of the working class, where did they fit into? Yeah, so it's, it's complicated. I mean, many of them, I mean, one of the things that jumps to mind thinking about service workers is the public sector workers. So there's certainly been, there, there's been attempts by the Kremlin for what they refer to euphemistically as optimization. So we're going to consolidate, uh, you know, hospitals and schools and so forth. Uh, and teachers, uh, medical workers, they have, um, they, they will protest. Um, and, uh, so there, there clearly signs of dissatisfaction that, that rise up from groups like that. Um, on the other hand, there's a lot of public sector workers that feel that they're dependent on the state, that that's where their employment comes from. And so they may find themselves in a difficult position. So Bryn Rosenfeld has written about this, about the sort of myth of the Russian middle class as, as the savior, you know, that will bring Russia to modernization or something like that. And she says, well, you know, some of these public sector workers, because they're in the situation of dependence, they're not necessarily um, have that, that sort of progressive future oriented, uh, outlook. Well, this speaks to a question I was going to ask later, but, uh, reading your book, you, you did, you talked about that a little bit, how like the West anticipates this kind of, if Russia was this true to form democracy, that it would just look, start looking more and more like the West. But I wanted to hear more from you about what do you think uh, true-to-form democracy in Russia, like how would they address these issues? I mean, looking at, say, Russia, not only as first Russia, but as second Russia and so on, rural Russia too, which I don't talk about, but I mean, it, it's, it's a more complicated picture. Um, and Russia is a vast country, not only in terms of its geographic space, but also just in terms of its social complexity. And, and I think one of the problems is it's not even easy, even for Russians themselves, those in first Russia, to travel that social distance. And, and, and again, not just geographic, but social distance, right? And really comprehend what life is like in these industrial and communities in, in the rural hinterland. It's, it's easy to engage in stereotypes. Um, so Putin has worked to exploit that social divide. Yeah, look, you know, you want decent wages and here are these liberals and they want to give you pussy riot and a lesson in LGBTQ tolerance or something like that, right? 
Yeah. And if I, if I could interject here too, you know, there's, I've, and I see this in, in, in some liberal, liberal Russian commentary every once in a while, there's a real fear of lower class people amongst some of these, uh, you know, urbanite liberals because of. Yeah. There's the fear of the Russian bunt. Uh, yeah. The, the Russian, just the popular peasant uprising. Yeah. So, so, so Putin exploits this divide, but Russian liberals and, and whether they're opposition leaders or liberal minded intellectuals, they, they contribute to this. So the truckers, for instance, those truckers protests that happened in 2015, all of a sudden truckers are protesting throughout Russia. And first you would hear people say, oh my God, it's going to be a revolution. Khodorkovsky from exile was saying, the truckers are going to lead a revolution. And then it looked like, oh, it's sort of disappointing because one of their first slogans was President Pamagi, President help us. And then you would hear people say, ah, oh, you know what? These are people, they're just unthinking brutes. This is why we have Putin. Uh, you know, these are people that just like vodka and potatoes. And, and you would hear them referred to uh, literally as, as cattle, bidla. Uh, and, and I remember this, this is true for you. I used to, I mean, when I studied coal miners at the end of the Soviet Union, they would complain that people called them beetle, you know, just cattle, even though they were militant and organized and so on. And, and the truckers, the truckers became organized and they became quickly radicalized. Uh, one of them, he, I love this quote, one of them said, I turned off the television and I saw the light. Uh, and and they were they organized a general strike. They demanded that the government resign. Uh, one of their own leaders tried to run for president against Putin. Now he was harshly repressed. Um, so again, what the Kremlin really fears is that the political protesters, you know, demanding free elections might combine with the economic protesters, um, demanding higher standard of living. And, and I would argue that this is partly why Navalny was so threatening. Um, because corruption was an issue that could bridge this divide. Um, and, and one of the truckers who showed up at one of the Navalny-inspired protests, he's, he referred to the fact that this truck tax was supposed to help repair roads, that the trucks supposedly destroyed. And he said, it's not the trucks that are destroying Russia's roads, it's the yachts. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then and, and just to, um, just to finish this thought, so... Speaking to this divide, uh, and I'm not sure I exactly answered your question, but when the Belarus protests happened, so in Belarus, uh, protesters, not only from the, um, you know, the, the, the sort of professionals and the liberals and, the, and so on, but workers uh, were protesting. 80 enterprises, workers went out in protest uh, against Lukashenko. And, and in one of the protests, the workers from the Minsk tractor factory marched with a banner. And the banner read, we are not sheep, we're not cattle, we're not the little people. We are the workers of the Minsk tractor factory, and we're not 20, we're 16,000. And so that seemed to be a message not only to Lukashenko, but also to the liberal professional class, you know, that, hey, we're not unthinking. And, you know, we, we have at least potentially some, some real social power here. Um, you know, a lot of what you describe, I mean, I don't want to get too far and, and kind of flatten the Russian particularities of this. But these are transformations that are going on in many places around the world, whether it's a, a weakening of, of working people's labor power, whether it's this topsy-turvy change in politics where it seems more working class people now tend to be on the conservative political side, whereas 
the left has historically tried to appeal to the working class. You get this strange topsy-turvy thing. Um, so talk a bit about, you know, when you look at the broader field of labor around the world, how do you, uh, where do you place Russia in that yeah, so great question. Yeah, so absolutely deindustrialization um, in many parts of the world, union struggles in many parts of the world. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, where does the service, where do service workers fit into this old narrative? Um, absolutely. I mean, it's a couple of things make Russia quite distinct, I would say. One is that there are just a large number of large enterprises. So the number of workers in the manufacturing sector that are in working in workplaces of 250 employees or more are just much higher in Russia than they are in, in the 20 some countries that the OECD, this kind of international think tank compares them to. So, so upper to, you know, upper middle countries. So many more large industrial enterprises have survived and very low productivity. So labor productivity is, is kind of economists would say key to economic growth in Russia. It's just very low. Workers still get paid very little. They have very little incentive to invest in education and many very, and they're in the factories themselves. The, the owners have very little interest in investing in technology because we can just hire workers more cheaply, cheaply. Um, so unions are struggling everywhere, but in, in Russia, you have these legacy unions, you have the, the, you know, the holdover from the communist party, um, unions, uh, there's that. And then ideology plays a kind of a, you know, say the legacy of ideology. So mention Novichokovsk. I mean, this is still just a touchstone for Russian society. Um, there was this, this film that came out a year or so ago, Novichokovsk. And you know, portraying this this uh, historical event, 1963, I believe it was, uh, where workers protested and they were shot by Soviet officials. Uh, and this film, oddly enough, was was produced in part by the oligarch Alisher Usmanov, and it was ostensibly a kind of anti-Soviet message, clearly in the film. But but you just got the sense, like, well, how different is Russia today? I mean, what, what would happen if, if Putin or some regional governor uh, ordered the shooting of protesting workers? I mean, it happened in Kazakhstan. That, that is a legend. That's where the, the protests began in 2011. Workers were shot and killed. And, and Putin understands this because months before he went to Pikalyovo, this was in 2009, he went to Novichirkansk and he laid flowers down at, the, at a monument to the workers that were killed. And I think this is interesting because in many ways, Putin certainly is a kind of a right-wing conservative, um, you know, I don't know if you want to call him an autocrat, whatever the label might be, but contrast that to say somebody like Pinochet or the, the generals in Argentina. I mean, they literally threw union organizers out of a helicopter over the, you know, ocean. Um, and here's Putin laying flowers at this monument. Um, so. And then that gets back to this question about economic protests and, and why they're tolerated. Um, that, you know, it's, it's it, with all the power that Putin has, he just can't go out and shoot striking workers. He has to kind of, because of the way he has, has legitimated himself, uh, he has to, you know, make sure not to do that. You know, let, let's say 
you did have a color revolution in Russia. So one of the things I talk about is, is imagine that dissatisfied workers and dissatisfied urban intellectuals got together with, you know, economic grievances joined with political grievances. And you, you know, it sounds fanciful. It doesn't seem like it's certainly on the horizon in the near term, but let's say, you know, you got rid of Putin. Let's imagine even more that you had a, had a fully democratic Russia. Uh, what would that look like? And I think that this is something, you know, a kind of a par paradox for Russian liberals, um, because a truly democratic Russia would mean that it reflects the interests of the majority and er educated urban liberals in Russia are not the majority. Uh, so, you know, Russia would probably not immediately look more pro-Western and more cosmopolitan. And survey data makes it abundantly clear that the majority of Russians favor strong social protections rather than full-out market forces, uh, social democracy, if not outright socialism. Now, to, to your point earlier, Sean, Ed, the, the odd thing is, is that many of them will not reference socialism. They will not consider themselves socialists. So you can ask Russians, you know, what do you think of socialism? And, and an overwhelming majority will say, yet, you know, don't, don't want socialism. And then you'll say, what kind of economic system will you want? We'll say, well, we want one with state planning, you know, with, there shouldn't be private, private property. <laughs> I mean, literally, literally, you can look at the Lovada, uh, you know, survey, you know, surveys, and that's what Russians will say. So a real contradiction there. But I think, you know, for economic liberals, let's say the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Anatoly Chubais crowd or something like that. I mean, if they were to come to power, I mean, any painful market reforms that, you know, they'd have to be carefully crafted. So the pain doesn't fall disproportionately on Russia's many working class and, and rural communities. Um, otherwise maybe the post Putin Russia, you know, that tries to push through those economic reforms, maybe it would have to be more like Pinochet, you know, up being less rather than more democratic. And and just to be clear, this this is the labor dilemma, right? The the labor dilemma is how do you reform the country economically? How do you you know put these mono towns to rest <laughs> without causing mass social instability? Particularly when you have created a system, political system, where there isn't, there aren't. You don't have the ability to express your grievances. There aren't institutional mechanisms for workers to, to organize themselves and to push back and say, okay, you're going to do this. We need to demand that, you know, that, that they're, they, they're not part of the conversation. And then you have the way that Putin has legitimated himself, which is a kind of paternalistic, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm one with the Mujiki, but you know, it, it, it's my way or the highway. <laughs> so, yeah. Is there any chance to, for Putin to dig Russia or for Russia to dig itself out of the monotown downward spiral without over 300 of these towns turning into ghost towns in 10 years? Or is that an inevitability? Well, I don't, I think it's unlikely that they'll turn into ghost towns. And, and I think there is something to the government's taking the step of differentiating, you know, some of them, uh, workers probably will be able to, to commute somehow, or at least um, be able to survive without significant government intervention. Um, but, but in many of these places, there's, if, in order for them to become ghost towns, there'd have to be serious intervention, pushing people out and they show that they're 
they, they're resistance. Uh, Sam Green has this great phrase I like, aggressive immobility. Um, so this is one of the, the challenges that the, the state faces. But another one is, and this was just discussing with some colleagues, uh, Thane Gustafsson's book, Klimat, about climate change in Russia. And so what happens if the West and other countries get it together and say, you know what, we don't, we need to stop buying coal and oil and so on. What does Russia rely on economically? What is its comparative advantage? And if Russia doesn't seek to transform itself and find some other sources of economic growth now, while it can rely on oil and gas exports to a significant extent, what, what happens then? So that's a real long-term structural challenge for Russia. Um, and finally, you know, those of us who, or those who, uh, you know, keep up on what's going on in Russia through Western press sources, you know, you almost never, very, very rarely hear about the people you're, you're discussing, right? You're not, you don't hear about labor issues. You don't hear about, you know, everyday life, working people, unless there is a, a, a protest like the truckers. Um, most of the time, it, it's focused on, you know, as you said, Putin, the elite, and the liberal opposition, or opposition for them, you know, in general. So looking at, you know, labor and working people like you do, why, why is it important to look at these people for to understand the political, you know, climate of Russia? I think number one is just to simply understand the complexity of Russia. And, and again, it's, yeah, if it's hard for Russians themselves, though, those that live in first Russia to comprehend what's going on in the rest of the country, it's even harder for Westerners, even, even for journalists. I mean, some, some, you know, do travel into the hinterlands and come up with interesting stories and so on. But, um, I mean, one, one simple reason is to understand that there really are these dilemmas. So. You know, we're thinking now, particularly as we talk about um, Russia vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine and so on. I mean, it's almost as if Putin is this kind of superhero that he's just got just, you know, villain. Yeah, super, yeah, super, super villain. Absolutely. And, but he's just got these, these you know, powers that, uh, you know, he's in total control. The opposition is cowed and, and all that is true. But he's also really quite constrained in many ways. And, um, he just, he doesn't simply have, you know, uh, unlimited space to maneuver. And when I think about how, you know, I mean, if Russia really were to invade Ukraine, what, uh, so there was a, a brief boost with, you know, Crimea czars. He, he got a rally around the flag for, uh, effect for that for a couple of years, but, but that's all gone now. I mean, living standards in Russia are worse than they were in 2013 by some measures. Um, and so there's just a lot of, you know, an unhappiness to, to put it mildly underneath the surface there. Uh, so, and, and then there's Putin, you know, he has his real fears of color revolutions, not only in, I mean, look what happened in Belarus and then in Kazakhstan. Uh, he has his own fears about, you know, that are tied to these problems of, of how do I leave power? <laughs> if I stay in power too long, I might look like Lukashenko. If I hand off power to a less than charismatic uh, successor, it might look like the Kazakhstan scenario. Um, and, and absolutely, the economic and social conditions are, are crucial to that. Um, 
I mean, again, the Kazakhstan uprising happened in this this oil town where workers had been shot and, and had been protesting and were clearly unhappy, inequality and so forth. It had just gotten too much. There's a, there's a breaking point. And, and the Kremlin's well aware of this. So the Russian intellectuals might be afraid of the Russian boot, but uh, you can be sure that Putin and the people around him are afraid of that as well. That was Stephen Crowley. Stephen Crowley is a professor in the Department of Politics at Oberlin College. He specializes in Russia and Eastern Europe with a focus on labor and the political economy of post-communist transformations. His new book is Putin's Labor Dilemma, Russian Politics Between Stability and Stagnation, published by Cornell University Press. Thank you, Margaret. So we just heard this interview with Stephen about about labor issues. And I actually want Rusana to start with her comments. You know, here I want you to play the token Russian since you lived, you know, grew up there and lived there amongst this Soviet legacy. So what did you think of what what Stephen had to say? I I thought that this conversation was a great reminder that Russia still lives um, in the legacy of its Soviet past. And this inheritance is not so easy to deal with, right? Uh, And this legacy comes in different kinds, so to speak. It's material, ideological, and socioeconomic. So Stephen mentioned, you know, he talked about large factories, but also, for example, the idea of a paternal state, right? When Putin comes in and he, I don't know, uh, kneels the oligarch or whatever. Uh, And, you know, like another interesting example, which is not like a main takeaway, but something that I never thought about is how different the economic crisis was dealt with um, in Russia compared, say, to the U.S. during the Great Depression, that the jobs were still, the people got to keep their jobs, but the, the, uh, the value of wages went down dramatically, right? And as a kid, I mean, obviously... <laughs> as a token Russian here, uh, I can share some of my personal experiences. I, re- I remember those times very well. Like my, my parents both worked in the state sector at the university and they ha- they weren't paid for, for, you know, months on end, but they still kind of had their jobs. And I never thought about the implications of how this crisis was dealt with. The, the fact that the economy wasn't changed as dramatically and so that baggage all that baggage kind of stayed with in in with with russia today in forms of monotowns etc etc and like 30 years in we're still like dealing with that past that it seems to me that in thinking about this ownership in russia changed right in in a lot of ways but the actual structural you know, the materiality of the economy didn't change uh, as rapidly or in some cases at all, um, which is very, I, I think this interesting, like like you pointed out, the fact that you had no mass unemployment, but, you know, basically people weren't paid for, you know, on average five months, particularly in the late 1990s, um, is, a, is a far different um, experience than you would have if you had mass unemployment, for sure. What What did you think, Margaret? Well, just to respond to what you said, it just reminds me of, I mean, we keep going back to this idea of 
Soviet nostalgia, but it's like, how can you not feel, quote unquote, nostalgic for a system that's the only thing that's seemingly the only thing that's holding up the working class is the leftover Soviet infrastructure? And like, has modern Russia even filled in the gaps with, I mean, is there even an alternative system in place for anyone to lean on? Well, I think that's the that's the dilemma, right? The dilemma is how do you put in a different system without creating the social and economic disruption of, you know, what Stephen called second Russia, right? First Russia, it, it's interesting, you get a divergence, right? You have a first Russia that I think has a different economic, social economic experience just by, you know, the materiality that surrounds them, you know, living in Moscow, for example, or even St. Petersburg or some of the major towns, the major cities, versus the experience of so-called second Russia uh, in, you know, a monotown out there is a, is a, you know, with a different material experience. I mean, one of the things that consistently fascinates me, and I mentioned this in the interview again, is how in the Soviet period, and I think this is why this legacy continues, and it's so hard to dismantle it, is that in the Soviet period, the factory was a major node of social welfare and providing infrastructure to these towns. And to get rid of them, you have to provide some kind of alternative um, and that, you know, that, that takes a lot of disruption that the Putin government is, is clearly adverse in, in taking. Even the distinction between first Russia and second Russia is a little confusing. I mean, stemming from even the, one of the first questions you asked Stephen was, what is or how do you define working class? And based on his answer... <laughs> It's clear that it's not such a definable concept. Like the people that are dealing with the set of issues that comes with living in a monotown is completely different than the set of issues of people working in the public sector, for example. And like how much crossover is there really? And like, is it fair to just homogenize that face into second Russia? I mean, are they really like the same class of people if they're, you know? not dealing with the same cards here. Exactly, you know, and something else that struck me was um, at the very beginning, Stephen talked about small and middle-sized town being the backbone of Russia, you know, and I think you rarely hear that <laughs> in academia because a lot of research is done, you know, in the first Russia or in like Moscow or other big urban centers and um, it's true that a lot of times you know left intellectuals uh, or you know ur urbanites you know Moscovites or people uh, St. Petersburgans <laughs> how would you call them uh, elites yeah um, they would kind of equal the conservatism of these um, small people from small towns with, you know, uh, being Putinists and equal them with like cattle or people who cannot think for themselves, etc., etc. And I feel like that's such a short-sighted view of 
the majority of the Russian population. And I think that also speaks, like Margaret, you were saying, to the differences that exist in, um, you know, in different classes and in different, you know, people in, coming from different regions. Even, like, the poor people in the cities, like, I don't know, like, my mom grew up really poor, she always tells me, but she still has this, she's from St. Petersburg, and she has this kind of high-class mentality that uh, she would all, I mean, I'm not saying that she calls people cattle, but she would also be prone to this kind of uh, disdain for poverty, for the for the outskirts of Russia, for the boons, boondock people. I mean, there's a there's a couple of points I, I would make for this. The first is is that this is a trend, of course, that goes beyond Russia. Um, this disdain for um, you know the little people or rural people or the you know less cosmopolitan the basket of deplorables. Yeah, the, the, exactly the deplorables or whatever we want to call them. Um, second, it, it always strikes me too that, um, and this goes with something you mentioned, Rusana how uh, research agendas are defined by one's own class. <laughs> so you have a, there's a tendency to study, you know, things of your own class that you're, that you're comfortable with. Um, and in, in particularly in the, in the political realm amongst, you know, kind of more lefty or liberal types, there's a, I, I see this, there's a growing tendency, not, not everywhere, of course, but, you know, there's the there's the so-called working class that you want, and you don't want to deal with the working class that you actually have. Um, so you know it's a it's a really difficult to give these people voices um, and to uh, speak about their plight. I mean, the problem is is that you know not many people actually care or think these people are important to understand, say, the politics of a place like Russia today, right? Um, and it's unfortunate because, you know, it's more important to deal with people who have to live there. The last thing I want to say is this goes to a, a thing that when I was paying closer attention to these things in Russia, by not focusing on what's going on in this quote, quote unquote, second Russia, for, it reinforces this idea that people out there are kind of sheep, right, or zombified. Well, if you look closely, there's a lot of local activism. I mean, Rusana, you know this. You're kind of dealing with this. Um, you have all sorts of small little struggles in towns and villages across the country. And yeah, they're not going to bring, you know, the glorious revolution. And they're not going to overthrow Putin or anything. But it shows that these people are struggling for to eke out, you know, a normal existence on their own terms. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely see it in my own field, like uh, people who get these land plots in the far eastern Russia, uh, many, many outsiders would view them as ardent Putinists or, I don't know, like ultra-right conservatives. I mean, maybe not ultra-right, but definitely very conservative and backward and, I don't know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and, and I think it takes, it takes a lot of effort to kind of disent, like not even disentangle, but to kind of, um, 
clear clear up the field from all these labels that don't really tell us much about what these people actually are up for and what are they trying to pursue you know and that's where that's where ethnographic research comes in <laughs> spending a lot of time out here and kind of getting to the nitty-gritty of things the one thing i was if, if i may give Stephen a bit of a criticism and maybe it's not it's my fault for for us not asking and following up on this question but i was i was actually quite dissatisfied with his definition of the russian working class mostly because my question and i don't know if he deals with this but i know other people who do like jeremy morris who we, i've talked to before is how do these people define themselves in terms of their class imagination um, I, I think this is a vital question that needs to be answered and could only, you know, ethnic, this is where ethnographic research does come in really is really crucial because it poses the question, okay, we can label these people whatever we want based on our own sociological or ideological categories, but how do they see themselves? You know, how do they understand their cultural milieu and their economic and social lives in relationship to that so-called first Russia? That goes into, I, I was wondering the same thing in the context of the monotowns, like, what do they see for themselves as their path forward? And you, you asked that too. I did, but I, I think that the answer is, I mean, it's kind of a similar answer as the working class, like, vague. Uh... Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the thing. Like, what it, if these people had s self-determination, what would they determine? in terms of their lives, like how would they or reorganize the lives they have? And, and honestly, you know, what they might do with it might be quite horrifying, <laughs> right? It could be, it could fall into these kind these, you know, xenophobic or, you know, things that us more culturally refined types might find somewhat disturbing. But like I said, it's the working class you get, not the one you want that you have to deal with. So... Okay, well, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and uh, just a reminder, I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. You've been listening to the SRB podcast, which is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. I won't go through the whole uh, pitch that we did in the beginning, but you know, please help us out. Um, tell your friends about us. Drop us a line on Facebook and Twitter and at srbpodcast.org to let us know what you think. Um, again, I'd love to have listeners send in some audio testimonials about the podcast, what you like, what you don't like, where you listen. It could be lighthearted. Um, you know, record something using your phone. Uh, very easy to do. And then you can email it to info at srbpodcast.org. That is info at srbpodcast.org. And we'd love to include them into the podcast. And, um, you know, please, if you have some extra, you know, cash, you can afford it. Please take a moment to become a patron. This podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor. And as we try to bring you more and more varied programming about the wider Russia and it, their surrounding region, we want to keep this completely free and free of advertisements. So please consider becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or you can go to srbpodcast.org and find the Patreon link there. Uh, until next time, bye. <laughs>